It's time to talk about all things mental health. This is Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. As a seasoned licensed therapist, Cecile is the owner of Transcend Therapy and is here to inform, guide, and connect you on the big and small everyday happenings that affect our mental and emotional well-being. Cecile is passionate about making a lasting and positive impact on people, connecting them to their own wisdom and strength while having a little fun along the way. Get ready to challenge the power of your human spirit. It's time to get mental. And now here's your host, Cecile Ahrens. I'm really excited about today's presentation and our speaker. Our speaker, Cecile Ahrens. She's a bilingual therapist with over 20 years of experience in helping people with a variety of issues that include family issues, couples issues, grief and loss, addiction, self-esteem, self-confidence, domestic violence, workplace issues. With her experience or training, she's not afraid to talk about those issues that sometimes, you know, we feel, well, am I going to be judged, uh, so forth. So, She's going to share a variety of information with us. Uh, one of the things that's unique about Cecile is that she's also a certified employee assistance professional. That means that she understands workplace issues. So in addition to the personal things that, that you know, we often need help with, she understands the, the workplace stuff. So that, that's a, a unique type of uh, professional uh, that, that is out there. Uh, when providing services to her clients, she strives to connect them and connect you to your own power, your strength, your wisdom. So without further ado, I'll pass the mic over to Cecile. Thank you, Cecile. Wow, thanks so much, Mercedes, and welcome, everybody. Thank you for being here today. I'd like to personally thank the team who put this together because I think it's a very important subject, and it says a lot about Chevron to be wanting to dedicate time and resources to help people understand not just mental health, but mental health as it relates to Asian Americans, because we do have our own unique struggles around this subject. So first of all, I want to disclose, I'm also Filipino American. I was also born in the Philippines, then I moved to Australia, and then I moved over here. This subject is very close to my heart. And so throughout the talk, you'll hear me speak as part of the collective. I'll be saying things like us, we, ours, but that is to refer to Asian Americans as a whole. And I'm not the expert on Asian American life. I'll be speaking from a professional standpoint and from some of my lived experience. So first, I'd like to start just by talking about mental health, just a basic understanding of what those two words mean mental health. I'm going to start with some thoughts from the World Health Organization, also known as WHO. So according to WHO, mental health is a lot more than the absence of illness. It's an intrinsic part of our individual and collective health and well-being. There is no health without mental health. I really like that statement because oftentimes when we think of mental health, I think we think of mental illness automatically. But just because you have mental health challenges, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have a mental health illness. So I think it's really important to differentiate that. Secondly, if you do end up having symptoms that meet criteria for a diagnosis, i.e. a mental illness, 
there's also no shame in that. And this morning, we're going to dive into what some of those uh, stigmas are that perpetuate the shame and secrecy, especially in the Asian American uh, community. So my colleagues and I say that your mental health is just as important as your physical health. And specifically, your mental health is expressed as your thoughts, your emotions, and your behaviors. So if you think about it, all those three processes affect every single human being, regardless of your race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. Right? We all think, we all feel, we all do. So it's really important, especially for the Asian American community to start, we need to start helping and supporting each other in just normalizing these conversations, normalizing these struggles. And, you know, realizing that mental health challenges do not discriminate. We all struggle. We all have our own um, kind of issues, really, that we have to contend with. So, again, mental health is just as important as physical health. That's going to be the heart of our message today. So, with that said, I'd like to turn your attention over to the next slide in keeping our focus on Asian American mental health. So, who are Asian Americans? I thought that was an important question for us to establish first. The U.S. Asian population is a diverse group of people um, who come from many parts of Asia, including Japan, Cambodia, Vietnam, Korea, as you see on the screen, Philippines, India, China, Sri Lanka, Maldives, um, Guam, Laos, all these different countries, right? And the Asian American population only accounts for 5% of the U.S. population, yet it accounts for 60% of the global population. I thought that was really fascinating, right? We're, we're a growing minority in the U.S., yet globally, Asian Americans are said to be um, that we are 60% uh, of the world's population. I did not realize that, to be honest with you, until I started really digging into the research. Asian Americans collectively speak over 30 languages, which I think, again, is fascinating and just highlights the complexity of mental health service delivery, um, which I'll talk about later on as to what some of the barriers for to care are because of just all the different subcultures within the Asian culture and the different languages and dialects within the Asian culture. But out of interest, I thought it might be uh, interesting or educational for everyone to know that the top five Asian origin group origin groups in the U.S. are from China, India, Philippines, Vietnam, and Korea. And you can just look around and look at the makeup of your workforce or your department, and you know, hopefully, this is uh, this is a true experience for many of you. I know it is for me. Around six in ten Asian Americans—that's about fifty percent, fifty-seven percent—were born in a foreign country. So I think that's another interesting fact. Even though Asian Americans are projected to be the nation's largest immigrant group by the middle of the century, at least in the United States, there's only about 43% that are born in the U.S. The majority are foreign born. So because we are projected to be the nation's largest immigrant group by the middle of the century, I really want you guys to take that in. It is imperative that we understand and address the unique needs and mental health challenges of the Asian American community, because it's the WHO, the World Health Organization, 
predicts a global crisis when it comes to mental health. And they're being really aggressive in making sure that they are leading the way to transformative, destigmatizing, and accessible mental health care. But it's just going to get worse. That is kind of the prediction, especially with the pandemic and the impact of COVID and now the inflation and so forth. So I'm really excited that we're talking about this. On the next slide, I wanted to show you just where we are on the map. Nearly half of all Asian Americans live in the West, which I don't find surprising personally, followed by the South, then the Northeast, then the Midwest. So this already shows you a very kind of complex uh, migration pattern. So in the next slide, I would like to elaborate on that. So the obvious way that Asian Americans come to be here is through birth. But then remember, 43% are born here. The rest are not. So what follows are these other complex migration paths. Naturalization. Some of you may or may not know what that means, but that's basically when somebody, a non-citizen, becomes a U.S. citizen, either through marriage, that is they're marrying somebody who is a U.S. citizen, or through family petitions, and this is very common with Filipino Americans, where children petition their families, mainly their sisters, their siblings, their parents, or vice versa, or specifically unique to Filipinos is military service. Um, because I think it was in the 1930s uh, when the Philippines gained independence, there was an agreement between the Philippines and the U.S. where the U.S. could recruit Filipino nationals to join the military. And so about 35,000 uh, Filipino nationals joined the military, and through that they were able to um, stay in the United States. The other not so talked about or recognized path for migration for Asian Americans is through the refugee asylum process. So this is very a very legal process um, where you have to prove, specifically for asylum, you have to prove that you need to leave your country for religious uh, persecution, political persecution, or racial persecution. Refugees, it's a little different, but similar. But that's basically when people are forced to leave their country due to war, um, really dire um, living circumstances where, you know, they're not choosing to leave, but they have to leave for their own survival. Asylum is more a choice, even though, you know, most people who seek asylum would wish that they didn't have to seek asylum. So the Asian American, uh, sorry, the Asian groups that mainly seek refugee or asylum status are uh, from Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos. And when I worked for the Department of Homeland Security a few years ago, and I worked with refugees and asylum seekers, I saw a lot of people from China seeking asylum. And that really surprised me. But then, you know, as I got informed, I understood what that was about. The other path is through the student visas. So as you probably know, and maybe some of you may have experienced this already, that there are many people from Asia who study in the U.S. and other parts of uh, the developed countries like UK, Canada, Australia. But U.S. is one of the big countries that have student, uh, that, sorry, that grant student visas. So this is a, a kind of a tricky part of um, the mental health picture or the landscape because they don't have, they're not citizens. Therefore, many of them don't have insurance to seek mental health care. So a lot of them are supported by 
incentives and initiatives that are going on in their specific colleges or universities. Occasionally, we'll get contacted um, through our private practice by people, representatives from the colleges wanting some help for their Asian American students. So I think that's kind of important too to remember, right? That it isn't, we're not a homogenized group and that there's a complex web of migration paths um, for Asian Americans. Then the last one is work visas. This is when an employer will sponsor a non-citizen to work in the U.S. and it's for a definite or specific amount of time. And then after that, they usually renew it or they, they might have to leave. So again, similar to student visas, the, the folks who are here on a work visa, depending on their job, some of them might have really good insurance, but some of them may not. So, but, and they also have unique mental health challenges because they're away from their family. They're trying to assimilate in another country. Um, they might feel isolated. So with every kind of layer here, they, there are different mental health challenges for each of these um, migration paths. Now, we know that people who are born in the U.S. tend, Asian Americans, sorry, who are born in the U.S. tend to access mental health care more than any other uh, group. And I think that's because it's been normalized to many uh, Asian Americans who are born here, that mental health is real and that there is no shame in it and that mental health care is um kind of part of how they were conditioned to think, especially if it's not in the home, it's definitely happening at school, in, in the communities. So I'd like to turn you over to the next slide to just talk about that a little more. So a 2007 study, 28% uh, of Asian Americans access mental health care compared to 54% of the general population. So that's really low. And that's not to suggest that that's because we have lower rates of mental illness or mental health challenges. It's really because of a lot of um, stigma and a lot of mis myths around mental health and misunderstanding. U.S. born Asian Americans are more likely to seek mental health care than first generation Asian Americans. We also tend to have lower rates of divorce, juvenile delinquency, poverty and economic instability. And I'll explain more about why that is on the next slide. We also have um, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, PTSD, all the things that everyone else suffers, Asian Americans suffer as well. We don't know exactly at what rates because again, because of the low utilization, there really isn't a clear, accurate picture of the mental health situation for Asian Americans because they're underreporting, they're underutilizing, and they're probably not even recognizing a lot of the symptoms as mental health challenges or mental health illnesses but depression and anxiety are the most common mental health disorders and the most treatable and Asian Americans are not immune from that. But we also get a lot of PTSD, suicide, unfortunately, as Jenny had um, shared her story, child abuse, domestic violence, and unfortunately also homicide. Um, so this struggle is, is real. So some of the contributing factors to low utilization, social stigma and family stigma, this is a big one. And I see this as a double negative because not only do we have to endure the social stigma with what well, like many other non-Asian groups, non-Asian American groups, but we also have the unique challenge of facing family stigma. 
it's very hard for us to acknowledge that we might have mental health challenges, let alone tell our family, and then let alone seek help. That's a very complicated process for many Asian Americans. I have many Filipino American clients currently who struggle to even tell their parents that they're in therapy, you know? Um, and why is that? It's because there's a lot of shame around mental health because of the way collectively we were conditioned and the lack of education around mental health in general throughout the Asian uh, American population. When you think about it, psychotherapy is a Western concept, right? Talking to somebody, a stranger, which to us is very taboo, um, and paying them <laughs> is really counterculture. That is not something that we were raised to do. It's not something we think to do, unless, of course, you've had a little bit more awareness and education, hence an Asian American such as myself now being a mental health clinician. So it's very counterculture, first of all. And then we also like to turn to informal forms of care and support. Those are our family, our friends, church, prayer, we like our traditional healers, alternative, uh, sorry, alternative forms of healing such as Reiki, acupuncture. You know, we like to gather around food. We like to socialize. Those are some of the ways that many Asian Americans get through hard times and get through um, difficult emotions. But of course, unfortunately, some of these forms of care and support are not always what's needed. And they also have their own limitations, especially if we're dealing with things that are more chronic, persistent, or serious. On the next slide, we're gonna continue this conversation and I'm gonna really focus more on specific cultural values that contribute to low utilization of mental health care. So family interdependence is a big one, meaning we rely on family for many of our needs. Family is the seen as the primary support group, so to speak. Um, it's very counterintuitive for us to step outside of that. And again, this is all like generally speaking, there's always exception to the rules. But in general, this this idea that you keep it in the family, you know, shared belonging, shared responsibility, shared suffering, and to really like not go outside of the family system to talk about the bad stuff, to talk about the hard stuff. That's a big value system in many Asian American cultures. Self-sufficiency is another big one. It gives us a lot of pride to know that we can rely on ourselves and that we can rely on each other to help each other out when we have problems and when we have challenges, right? There's a sense of kind of accomplishment and it's almost celebrated to be able to kind of do things on your own or do things within the family. So it gets internalized collectively, right? Over time, over generations, that this is the way to be. This is just how we do things, you know? And that's not necessarily wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to say that these are all not the way to be. But again, both can be true at the same time, meaning Yes, you can be self-sufficient and you can also receive support and help, right? Like both of those things can really complement each other. And that seeking help and support is not, um, doesn't take away from your self-sufficiency. Like if you had diabetes and you need, needed care, you would go to a doctor, right? But when, we, when it comes to mental health, we kind of still think about that very differently. The next value is economic success. 
So it's very, um, it starts very early on this idea that we have to be successful and to be successful means to be economically successful and to also be educationally successful in many Asian um, American households. Seeking mental health care is seen as a weakness and it's seen as a threat, a potential threat to success, right? If you had to, especially for those experiencing chronic mental health conditions, if you had to really attend to that, it might slow you down. It might require you to make some real changes in your life. And if those changes are going to affect your economic prospects, that could be really hard for an Asian American to to contend with or to live with. And then they also have to deal with what their families and friends might think. Educational attainment, similar to economic success, we we value this so much because through education means economic success. Usually this is what gives us opportunities to, you know, be self-sufficient, be successful and continue to provide for our family. So if it also, I think, gives us the sense that we need to be goal-oriented all the time, which in and of itself is one of the unique stressors for Asian Americans. I hear this all the time, you know, the, the, the pressure that kids have felt um, from their parents to succeed, to, to always have straight A's, right? To, to be really good at everything, which is now, um, I'm talking about excellence now as well. It's overlapping. This idea that we have to be overachievers, that we have to excel in so many things that we do. Um, seeking mental health support is seen as the opposite to educational attainment and being successful and being excellent, right? So there's a lot of emotional barriers that an Asian American has to work through in order for them to even acknowledge their own challenges and seek help and tell their parents. There's a lot of sense of failure. There's a lot of shame and there's a lot of isolation and secrecy, meaning because you can't really talk about it with your family, a lot of Asian Americans tend to suffer in silence and tend to um, you know, be in secret about the mental health care that they're receiving, especially if you start talking about psychotropic medications. That's there's also that's very frowned upon because, again, that is not the Asian American way. We were raised to use alternative forms of care and also being sensitive to the fact that psychotherapy and psychiatry, again, is a very Western concept. And we're just starting to learn as a collective the advantages of seeking mental health care. There's also this idea that problems are transitory, meaning, oh, if you just do this, if you just meet this goal, if you just graduate, graduate college, if you just buy more, do more, you know, you'll feel better. That might be true in some cases, but in many cases, if we're dealing with mental health um, challenges that are chronic and persistent, none of those things are really going to help. Most of the time, we're going to need some professional support. So on the next slide, I'd like to talk about the red flags and the symptoms and signs that you may already be experiencing or you're noticing in a loved one or a coworker. And so I'm here to maybe validate that as well. So anytime you see changes in mood, behavior, overall functioning, anytime that someone just seems off, they don't seem like themselves, um, maybe they're presenting with low energy, low motivation, they're complaining of sleep problems, poor appetite or overeating, sudden weight loss or weight gain, increased use or abuse of substances, 
Um, that could also include coffee, because coffee is also a drug, um, and engaging in high-risk behaviors. So those are kind of some of the, the, the most basic things that you can start to assess for yourself or in your loved ones as to kind of figure out like what are yeah i feel like something's wrong with this person but why do i feel that it's be, it could be because of some of these issues so these are red flags it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a mental illness right but it can certainly signal that this person is going through something hard something stressful it might only be a seasonal challenge or it might be kind of an ongoing issue it might be situational or it might be biological, okay? The good news is it's not your job to, to assess or to treat, but if you do see this, um, we're gonna talk about ways you could support other people. If you are all experiencing some of these things yourself, I would say it won't hurt to just talk it over with people that you trust and see if they've also seen some of these changes and also consider talking to a therapist, an EAP professional, and as Mercedes said in early in our talk, they're confidential. Um, even though it's employer paid, they still have to function like a healthcare professional in that none of these issues can be talked about, even with your closest friend or loved one, unless you legally consent to the release of that information. So on the next slide, we're going to continue on with um, signs. So this is really important, a pattern. If you're seeing any kind of pattern of excessive blank, I left that blank because really that could be so many things. It could be excessive, you know, drinking, excessive shopping, excessive sleeping, excessive talking. That could be a sign of somebody really stressed and anxious, you know, excessive irritability, or it doesn't even always have to be excessive, but a pattern of a behavior that is not normative for that person or a pattern of problematic behavior. If we bring that to the workplace, a pattern of absenteeism or tardiness or interpersonal issues um, or performance problems, making mistakes, forgetting things, that could indicate that somebody it might be struggling with something stressful either at work, most likely at home. Um, and that may be a time to kind of offer some support, especially if there are HR people listening. I'm sure you have already some training around this, um, but these are some of the things to definitely watch out for. Social isolation, withdrawal, becoming disengaged. And if you have any questions about that later, uh, please feel free to ask me. Constant worry or anxiety, static complaints. So this is very common for Asian Americans is there are a lot of physical complaints, a lot of somatic complaints, a lot, a lot of unexplained physical symptoms. Um, and this, is, this has been documented throughout the literature in that for some reason, Asian Americans show up with a lot of this stuff. And my theory in that is because they don't really have a language or a concept for mental health problems. But we know that physical and mental health overlap, that the mind and the body and the body and the mind, you know, are a symbiotic system and they affect each other all the time. But a lot of times Asian Americans will are able to identify the physical symptoms, but oftentimes they don't necessarily have a medical problem and that these physical symptoms are symptoms 
of emotional and mental health stress. So that's really something to to pay attention to, especially if you have loved ones who are constantly not feeling well physically and have a lot of unexplained symptoms. Irritability, anger, and aggression, those are other red flags as well. And aggression doesn't always have to be physical. It can be emotional. It can be verbal. You might be, you know, kind of lashing out or being mean or being insensitive. Um, those are red flags. Um, interpersonal performance issues, absenteeism and tardiness, like I talked about before. Um, that's specific to the workplace as well. But if you see somebody in your home who's, you know, not performing at work or not going to work as much or just, just seems kind of indifferent, and apathetic, that's also a big red flag, especially if that's a big departure from how they used to function. So on the next slide, we're gonna talk about barriers to care. So the big one is the lack of availability of Asian American mental health professionals. Unfortunately, a lot of Asian Americans enter the medical field and not the mental health field. That's slowly changing now, but we still have a long ways to go in really um, getting our Asian American uh, young people to enter the mental health and psychiatry profession. So a lot of times, especially the older generation, they really hesitate seeing somebody whom isn't of a similar background because they fear that they're not going to understand all the nuances of the culture and that they have to like explain, right? So many other things for the provider to understand kind of what's going on. But if you're seeing somebody who's from a similar culture or background, it takes the labor out from the client to have to kind of give that background, right? You can kind of just get to the work of doing the work versus having to spend so much time explaining the nuances of the culture. So that's a big advantage. And but that's part of the reason why there's a lot of um, Asian Americans who prefer not to seek help because of a lack of avail availability of mental health professionals of the same background. Language barriers are the same uh, are similar problem. A lot of times, you know, people prefer to speak in their native language. I actually speak Filipino myself, so I, I get a lot of uh, older generation Filipinos who who come to see me because of that, not necessarily because, you know, the best therapist, right? It's because of that language uh, advantage. Um, and it does really help when they could just speak freely and not have to think about how to convert something so complicated into another language. Now, for Asian American born, for, for those born in the States, that is not uh, really a big issue because a lot of them speak English and prefer that. The next barrier is difficulty navigating the complex behavioral system. So what I mean by that is, and you've probably experienced this yourself, if you wanna use your insurance and you are you know, unaware of how to do that, just the process of figuring that out, calling, finding a therapist, asking about your network benefits, or even just navigating EAP, that can be really daunting and overwhelming and confusing. So I think, you know, we need to make this process a little bit more simple and have support available to really break it down to not just Asian Americans. I know even Americans, you know, have a hard time navigating the behavioral health system, but it's extra hard for for people who aren't born here, who don't speak the language, 
who already have a lot of fear and anxiety about interfacing with the behavioral health or EAP system. So we just have to be really sensitive to that when they're calling, um, when you're on the other end of that, uh, when you're, if you're in HR, just making sure you are giving them and offering extra support and making this process as simple and easy for them. The next barrier to care is the limited availability of culturally competent care. This is really, really key. So not the answer isn't in just having Asian Americans see Asian American mental health professionals, right? That's not really the most viable solution. Of course, you know, if we increase the number of Asian American mental health professionals, that would help this this issue. But the bigger solution really is to have more cultural competency training for non-Asian American mental health professionals so that people would feel, the providers would feel comfortable, A, because they're, they're getting the training and it's kind of hopefully gonna be a standardized training, not an elective training. That's my personal plug. I think you know it should start in the education system where this culturally competent training for um, mental health professionals as it relates to Asian American mental health care should really be part of that system, especially if we're saying that Asian Americans are going to be the highest, you know, immigrant group um, by the middle of the century. The need is just going to get higher. So we that's a big problem um, that is really limiting and negatively impacting Asian American communities. So on the next slide, I'd like to talk about strategies and solutions. I know we only, I'm kind of going over time here, so I'm going to try to go a little faster. Strategies and solutions. So what can you do? The basics are always the basics of health, which is exercise, body movement, sleep, and diet. Those are the top three that you always want to kind of focus on. When all else fails, just check your, am I moving my body? How am I sleeping? And how's my diet, right? Because that all affects mental health. Um, identify your stressors, your emotional or behavioral triggers. Basically, what those are are people, places, and things that stress you out. We all have our triggers. And it's really empowering to know what they are because once you know what they are, you could kind of support yourself and prepare. Uh, nature therapy is also a big one. That's just, you know, going for our hikes where there's a lot of green, going by the beach. This is, there's a lot of research that has shown the effectiveness of nature therapy. Um, it it uh, immediately can lower blood pressure. It affects us on a cellular level to be in calm, natural spaces. Um, finding spots where you could, or experiences where you could experience joy and awe. This sounds kind of foo-foo, but it really is, again, a lot of research is emerging on this, uh, on this idea that when you find small moments of joy or awe, it has a powerful effect on our nervous system and our sense of wellness. So what I mean by that is, you know, like maybe you're tickling your dog and they're really cute, right? That's an example of joy and awe. You don't have to spend a whole lot of money to find these things. Um, if you see like a beautiful butterfly, right? Sometimes it stops us in our tracks. That's a small example of joy and awe. Uh, maybe your kid, you know, said something really funny or sweet or hugged you or kissed you for no reason. Those are moments of joy and awe. And if we can multiply those in our lives, it really protects us. Um, it's a, it acts as a protective barrier um, and really helps 
our, our sense of wellness um, improves. Of course, hobbies and interests are always fun, especially if you're working a lot. This is really important. You still want to nurture other parts of yourself and other parts of your identity because you're not just what you do. You're also a complex being with hobbies and interests and kind of other layers to you. And a lot of time that gets neglected in our busy modern life. Give your give yourself permission to unplug, rest, and have fun. Laughter is really good for our mental health. There's a lot of studies around this too. I did a podcast on this. You know, a good hearty laugh just boosts so much endorphins, helps helps our immune system. There's a lot of natural things. Find purpose and meaning and seek professional support. So how to support loved ones? Express concern, share your observation, offer practical support, listen and learn, and offer resources. There's a lot of things here I can talk about, but I can't now because we're running out of time, but I'm sure you'll have some questions. But just lastly, the things not to say, okay? Try not to say on the next slide, there are worse things in life. Tomorrow's another day. You'll be all right. You'll have so much to be grateful for. Those are really invalidating statements. If you don't have anything kind of that you think you can say, you can always ask questions instead of saying something. You can say, how can I help you? Let me know if you need anything. I'm sorry that you're uh, going through a difficult time. But lastly, helpful resources. Um, on the next slide, if you need any help, please call your EAP. They're open 24-7, 365 days a year. The numbers are there. Beacon Health Insurance and then United Way Referral Line. That's for any kind of community resources. Calling 211 is the easiest thing to do if you're not sure. They will direct you, help you. And of course, 911 if you're in crisis. And then there's a new number um, that was just launched, which is a national suicide or crisis hotline called 988. If, if in doubt, you could just start there as well. Um, or you can talk, text 741741 to get immediate support. So that concludes our talk. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and I'll be turning it over to Justin to facilitate the Q&A. Yeah, uh, thank you, Cecile, very much. It's, it's very appreciated. This is extremely impactful stuff. And um, and sorry to rush you here at the end, but I, I, we have such great questions. I wanted to give you a chance to ask. Um, and so I'll say, too, you know, as as I'm listening, um, you know, I can hear my own you know, father who himself was a refugee from the Vietnam War and my grandparents sort of looking at this and throughout my life, I could hear them sort of, I don't want to say scoffing at it, but just not giving it the respect that it's needed. And yet, as you were going through the red flags and signs and symptoms slides, I could point out a lot of the stuff I saw, even as a young boy, I can recognize now that I was seeing that in my family members or friends of mine. Um, and, and also watching them work themselves to the bone and really suffer in silence. And so I think it's an important thing. Um, I want to take that. I think that's a good segue into the first question we have here. And so sure. the question is, Asians have a strong respect for the, the elders of their family. That's just sort of a cultural thing. Uh, and yet much of an elder's mindset, the old school mindset, if you will, uh, would generally shrug off the idea of mental health. And so so what would you say is, is sort of respecting both sides of what are kind of powerful cultural components uh, in the Asian culture? I think it's, you know, it starts with education. And of course, you want to be really loving and respectful and sensitive when you, you broach that subject, but normalizing it to them, giving them information about well, you know, if kind of that example I gave a few minutes ago of like, if you had diabetes, you'd go see a doctor, right? If you had 
a medical condition or you're experiencing physical symptoms, you'd go see a doctor. It's kind of similar, you know, when you're dealing with kind of invisible, you know, symptoms that it's around the sphere of mental health. But you would have to do it's it's going to be a process. It's not going to be a one time kind of conversation. And we have to be for those of us who are more um, okay with this conversation, we have to have realistic expectations of where our elders uh, are at and how much they can really digest. And so it might be a just a planting of the seeds, you know, slowly over time. And I always tell my clients, example is the best teacher. If if you through your own life, right? If you start to model healthy kind of wellness and mental health and start to maybe disclose like I'm in therapy and this is how it's helping me and they start to see the change that also is a powerful motivator and teacher for a lot of our elders I've had a lot of parents kind of come around and go oh my god my son or my daughter you've helped them so much and so forth right in in a way that they didn't really understand but they had to see it they had to witness it for them to kind of get bought into it yeah yeah good information. This question, I think, maybe even builds on that. Uh, This is by Ed Young. Uh, Ed says, uh, when we see any of these red flags, the signs and symptoms, is there a technique of of conversing with them that increases the likelihood of them uh, getting this help, getting this professional help? Yes, that was the thing I skipped (laughs) because we didn't have time. So I'm glad that somebody asked. Well, basically, I'm looking at my cheat sheets here. Basically, you want to share your observation. You don't want to tell them, hey, I think something's wrong with you, right? Like you want to share what you're seeing and what you're observing. For example, hey, I'm noticing you're looking a little down lately. You know, I'm wondering like if you'd like to talk. And depending on what that person says, you really want to create safety, meaning you want to be that person that they know they can come to when they're ready to talk about it because they may not be ready at the time you initiate that you open up that discussion but it's about building trust and making people feel not not judged and not dismissed or invalidated that's why i included those statements in the end you know but if you have nothing if you're really struggling with what to say it's always better to ask questions than give unsolicited advice and if you are going to give advice you can ask in a nice way you can say things like can i give you some feedback or is it okay if i share with you my experience you know, a similar experience I've had if there's if they're starting to share. Uh, another question here. If someone is experiencing physical symptoms, where should you start? Uh, I've always seen a doctor in the past with no relief. Right. So it's always good to start with a doctor because that means we're going to medically rule out any issues. Right. But oftentimes this sounds like my mom is the same way. <laughs> She's always at the doctor and I always tell her, mom, there's nothing wrong with you medically. I'm telling you, you need to see somebody. But yes, so you start there because it's always a good idea to rule out medical issues. But if there's they're not finding anything and you're continuing to have these symptoms, it's most likely emotional and mental related because all those things affect our body. It affects us on a cellular level. The body is interconnected. So if doctors are continually saying nothing, nothing is wrong, you're good, you're clear, it's probably because of stress and other kind of chemical imbalances that are going on. It could be situational, like I said, or it could be a biological chemical thing that you've been dealing with that uh, maybe just has never been examined. Right, right. 
Yeah, and so again, a, maybe a similar question to build off of that: Does does medication work for depression, and, and what is the success rate of uh, medication? Absolutely, thank heavens for these meds. These are really life changing for so many people. In my over twenty years of experience, people on the right medication, I've never seen them do worse. They do better. So these are facts. Um, these are very evidence based treatments. Depression and anxiety are the most treatable of all mental health conditions. And the two things that help with that outside of diet, sleep and exercise are therapy and medication combined. If we're dealing with clinical depression, because sometimes you're situationally depressed, right, because of maybe somebody passed away or you're going through a divorce. But then when that cloud passes, you're back to your normal self, you know, but others are who are more chronically depressed. Medication is really part of the um, the treatment plan, and it it really is life changing for most people. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I think this one is really impactful. Just the, the sort of the genesis of this whole event was, um, as Jenny shared, a, a personal story of a friend and loved one um, who did commit suicide, unfortunately, um, and was sort of quietly dealing with something. And so the question is, how can a person who lost a loved one um, in suicide, or due to suicide, deal with the guilt for not being able to see or help uh, when that loved one was dealing clearly with with uh, mental health issues. Um, and now that it's too late, how does that person deal with um, with that loss and then and maybe the the ensuing um, guilt? Yeah. So first of all, guilt is a really normal response um, for suicide, especially because it is so traumatizing, shocking. It's very normal to kind of question yourself, question your action or inaction. But it's important to remember that suicide is not your fault. And the person who committed it, they didn't necessarily want to die. They wanted to end the pain and they didn't know what else to do or how else to manage their life. So how do you deal with the guilt? If the guilt persists, it's really important to consider therapy because it's complicated, you know, it's complicated by your history. Meaning if this is your if you've had other losses before and if there's, you know, kind of a strong religious background around guilt, this can complicate your grief process. Right. And for Asian-Americans, that's that's a big thing for us, feeling guilty and feeling ashamed. Um, so it's hard to unstick it. But some of the things you can do is, you know, like talking about it praying, reminding yourself, like, I did not choose this. Um, I didn't know at the time, right? You don't know what you don't know. Nobody understood what mental health was. So just trying to validate yourself and your family situation that as awful as this experience is, it's not your fault and it's not your responsibility alone to fix this kind of dysfunction or this problem, right? And that it takes a collective. So kind of giving yourself some grace, being kind to yourself and seeking support if it continues to to persist because it's complicated to unpack that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. This one goes back to the medication discussion we were having. A large part of the stigma I've seen uh, is that depression medication has a lot of negative side effects. Um, how would you consider that? Well, they do if you're on the wrong meds. The right meds, typically the side effects really are not that, there's ways this is kind of outside of my wheelhouse now because this is more psychiatry, but there are ways that psychiatrists and prescribing providers balance all of that. Sometimes you have to change your meds altogether because it's not the right one, or they might give you something else to help with the side effects, which a lot of people are afraid of that. I can understand that. But like I said, 
I've never seen anybody like not do well on the right medication. And the side effects usually, the benefits outweigh the risks, right? The benefits outweigh the side effects. And it's a personal decision, you know, like weight gain and uh, low sex drive is a common side effect of antidepressants. But if you're not suicidal, if you're feeling good and you're functioning and you're better mental health wise, people choose that over over the others, right? And then sometimes they might give you something to address the, uh, the the libido side of things. So it's kind of, it's complicated, but don't let the side effects kind of scare you from trying it out. Because like I said, people, it's, it's life-changing if you're on the right set of medications. Yeah. Well, uh, Cecile, I want to thank you again um, for your time today, for the impactful information that you've brought us. Uh, I want to thank Jenny um, for bringing sort of a personal story to this. And we hope that that colors uh, what it is we're doing here today. It's it's not just a mental health talk, right? It's a, it's a talk that has purpose and it's coming out of a place of, of real pain. And we hope that, that we can bring some help to those out there who may be dealing with the beginnings of this, right? Before it becomes um, something that affects families and, and uh, loved ones uh, in a big way. Um, I wanna thank on behalf of the AEN, I wanna thank uh, Jenny and the FEN as well. It's been a fantastic partnership to help put this on. Ce Cecile Ahrens, of course, thank you so much for your information. Candy Shukin, thank you so much for uh, organizing all this uh, and as well as Mercedes. I uh, hope everyone has a great day and uh, thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us today on Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. To learn more about Cecile, become a sponsor or guest on Get Mental, or if you have any questions about mental health, visit TranscendTherapyCA.com. That's TranscendTherapyCA.com. Join us next week at this same time for more talk on all things mental health on Get Mental with Cecile Ahrens. Go out